for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Pella Neuroth-Taylor, live from Sweden, on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome to the Pella Neuroth-Taylor Show on TNT, where truth resides. Um, welcome to uh, a new uh, sort of uh, discussion about what Macron said yesterday, or, or two days ago, which was that... NATO might put boots on the ground and um, in Ukraine, which certainly put uh, the cat among the pigeons. It was uh, very alarming. Uh, but uh, I did the show yesterday while uh, European leaders were busy denying that, uh, that they would be interested. And I was wondering what the UK would say is the usually the most hawkish country um, in Europe, apart from Poland. Well, Poland said definitely not. Uh, so did uh, Germany, which is less surprising. And uh, Sweden said no. Italy, Spain, uh, Czech Republic, which is also very um, pro pro Ukraine. And finally, Britain said no. And if you look at a map, which the French television did you know, yesterday evening, the whole map was covered with no signs, except for tiny little Lithuania, the loudest of the barking Baltic chihuahuas, talking big words. Well, it's got barely got an army. Well, they were prepared to go into Ukraine alongside the French. And then uh, the French, uh, the NATO Stoltenberg um, is usually another hawkish figure. He said, definitely not. We're not going into Ukraine. Schultz of Germany uh, was emphatic that uh, this was always agreed on. And he covered all the bases by saying not under a NATO flag or under the European flag. No European troops will be in Ukraine. That was not agreed on. And it's simply not going to happen. Um, and um, it's there appeared to be a rowback uh, later when the, um, the the French prime minister, Atal, I think his name is this young guy who's appointed out of the blue. Uh, he told the French Parliament that, uh, well, maybe maybe there'll be some French troops helping with mine laying and um, or mine clearance and other sort of humanitarian issues like uh, medical care and so on. Harmless stuff, not many people involved. So, you know, I mean, Macron, as the leader of a big and proud nation, had to, to, to had to have something to cover him when if he was backing down. Um, so you thought the story died there, especially when the French media seemed to to come up with a consensus that no, simply not on. And also that um, the, the French leaders that from the right to the left said that it's, a, it's an absolute disaster and a mistake to, to talk about uh, uh, create, creating conditions for a nuclear war between two nuclear powers, that's France and, and, and Russia. And uh, Olivier Faure, the socialist leader, said no, totally counterproductive. And Le Pen, who's the leader on the right, said um, this is an existential problem and it's absolutely not on. So even even if he was able to persuade Europeans or he wasn't able to persuade domestic opinion at all. So that begs a few questions. I mean, did he not know this? Um, and what's really going on behind the scenes? One thing is, one possibility is that he, I've been thinking about all the possibilities and that this is speculation, but I know that uh, it's been said that Macron uh, canceled his trip to Ukraine because there was an assassination plot against him. And um, I got this from a website called Ukrainian Leaks. I wanted to have the guy on the show, but he doesn't speak English, but he's a sort of whistleblower in Ukraine. And it's been rumored all over Twitter that uh, uh, they were trying to target uh, Macron. And this would be the, the sort, of, uh, sort of false flag incident that uh, I was so worried about that would spark a war. So maybe um, Mac this is my 
theory, conspiracy theory, if you like. I mean, um, Macron is a guy of very high intelligence. You know, it's possible to think two moves ahead in politics. He's certainly capable of it. Maybe he said, well, you know, I'm going to put this on the table. I'm going to float this idea and then I'm going to get all my fellow colleagues on the civilian side, that is in politics, political leaders to say, absolutely not. No way are we going to send troops into Ukraine. And the message is aimed so much as much as at the Ukrainian leaders, as much as at the Ukrainian secret services who are planning to assassinate and create a false flag. You know, whatever you do, you're not going to get us into a third world war. It's not going to happen. Uh, the Ukrainians must be clear now that with everyone saying no boots on the ground, that they, they don't really have any hopes of winning this war because that's what they're banking on all the time. And then um, he uh, it may be aimed at the warmongers in the West. I mean, there are, there are deep state operatives, intelligence agencies um, who are pushing for these things still. So that was just a theory. Or, or, or another worrying theory I had this morning was that actually Macron and all the others really do want to send troops to the ground, but for the sake of public opinion, they all had to say no, but they really meant yes. Anyway, I took it as a no, that was my instinct. I mean, it's the, and the Americans piled in and said, we're not going to send troops. And it seems to be an absolute consensus for no, no troops on the ground, no World War Three. But then you had some people in the British press this morning saying, well, you know, troops on the ground might not mean nuclear war, might not mean World War Three. the Ukrainians are losing. And if you've ever written a news article, and I've written many, you know you can spin an article a hundred ways, you know, and just by downgrading some quotes and upgrading others. So there was this sort of feeling that, oh, well, no, Macron hadn't suffered a defeat. He'd actually said something uh, interesting. There's a temporary setback in public opinion, but it's still on the table for for. Uh, the British press, at least the Guardian and the Telegraph, who cover right and left. So maybe the story, I mean, the the thing about the neocons or the warmongers is they have no reverse gear and they never, have, they're, they're like a, an incredibly persistent suitor, if you like. They will, they, if you close the door, they'll come in through the window. They will never, never, ever give up. They always try to push their agenda and they will twist words uh, completely. Um, and even um, Radikin, who was the, the commander in chief of British forces, he made a speech yesterday at all, which was also uh, very negative towards the idea of a third world war, because he was saying that all this conscription talk and World War III talk coming from the, his army commander, um, Patrick Sanders, well, he should have kept a bit quiet, he said, and uh, there's no imminent risk from Russia and we're not at risk from invasion and no conscription is going to take place. So this is Radikin, the commander of chief of British Armed Forces. It wasn't given nearly as much attention as it should. They reported it, but in the news cycle, it sort of got downgraded. And that's an incredibly important story. And the papers could have led with that if they really wanted to make a statement, but they didn't. And in fact, the article itself was not headlined. It's headlined, Radikin says Ukraine is going to be on the back foot for the next months, but didn't actually say the real news story, which was that he said no conscription. I mean, that's an, a major story. So if you know where the papers are coming from, that they're unreliable, unreliable in vaccines and lockdowns and much else, then you know how to read, read the news properly. That said, we are going to go to the news now, news analysis with our news producer, Basil Valentine. After the break, this is... Going 360 on the headlines. It's really well-balanced conversation. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to the show, Basil, our news producer. With today's other news, uh, you what have you what gems have you picked out for us today? Well, it follows on from uh, your lead story, really, Pele, um, but focusing on the role of 
European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who mm. has been addressing the European Parliament in Strasbourg, where she said, among other things, the threat of war may not be immediate, but it is not ruled out. Well, surely it should be ruled out. And she's also proposed harnessing windfall profits from frozen Russian assets to jointly purchase military equipment for Ukraine. Uh, yeah. So, you know, she wants to basically steal money. She stressed the importance of utilizing the funds from frozen Russian assets as a symbolic gesture to enhance Ukraine's defense capabilities and safeguard Europe. She underscored the critical nature of the current geopolitical landscape, emphasizing that Europe cannot afford to be complacent or indecisive in the face of emerging threats. So mm -hmm. she says she also, of course, famously, disgracefully uh, rushed to Tel Aviv after October the 7th to wrap herself up in the Israeli flag, kiss the ring, so to speak, and green light the massacre and mutilation of thousands of innocent civilians. Mm. A stance for which she has now been criticized by Josep Borrell, the EU foreign policy chief, uh, when speaking to the Spanish uh, quality daily, the sort of paper of record in Spain, El mm. País. That trip by von der Leyen with such an absolutely pro-Israel stance, he said, without representing anyone but herself in a matter of international politics, has had a high geopolitical cost for Europe, he said. And it begs the question, um, former Minister of Defence in her native Germany and a member of the uh, hugely prominent Albrecht family from North Germany, Nevertheless, with respect to her role as this sort of empress of Europe, uh, nobody's voted for Ursula von der Leyen. Who exactly does she claim to represent? And most well, importantly, I mean, it's you live question. under her yoke in Sweden. How can you get yeah. rid of her? Yeah. No, I mean, uh, um, I don't know. I, I dislike her viscerally, just like I dislike Netanyahu, and that maybe cloud my judgment. I mean, it's it's... You know, you sometimes say that uh, women in foreign policy are supposed to be nicer and kinder and gentler. But if you look at Hillary Clinton and Ursula von der Leyen, or De Lugan, as some people call her, um, she that's not the case. They can be quite extremist and, and non-compromising. -com um, she uh, has certainly made a profile for the European Union, hasn't she, in her, in her foreign policy stance? Uh, but funnily enough, I mean, the Commission doesn't have any responsibilities in, in foreign policy. That was one of the preserved... Uh, responsibilities of the nation states um, who represented in the council. Um, and the council is is whatever, the 27 member states and their leaders. And then they, the European Commission initiates legislation. But the council, I think, I mean, they still really have the reins and they pass things on to the commission. But I mean, she, they, she um, is, I mean, subject to what national leaders um, say and do. I mean, she, by the way, she, I mean, it, it, she will be appointed or not by the Germans as their candidate, but there'll be a huge amount of horse trading going on behind the scenes after the European Parliament elections, which is their sop to democracy in, in, uh, in May. And what happens is that the four uh, top positions in the European bureaucracy, uh, the 
president of the council, uh, the foreign policy spokesman, head of the uh, bank, and the uh, head of the commission, and uh, fourth guys at the bank, at the central bank. They'll all be discussed uh, and parceled out among, I mean, it'll be horse trading among the main nations. Of course, Germany and France have made most of the power and so on. And then those candidates, at least the foreign policy chief, Borrell uh, today, and uh, the commission chief will be, uh, the European Commission will, a uh, European Parliament will be allowed to vote on, but they won't be allowed to vote on different candidates. They'll have to vote yes or no to this candidate. So it's not no real choice. And she needs to get 50% if, if it's her, but we don't know. I mean, Schultz refused to elect her for uh, the for the um, NATO chief role. So she, because she's regarded too hawkish in Schultz for all his faults, the, the guy who's just sometimes described as a Frankfurter sausage because of his appearance, uh, is not as hawkish as, as, as at all, I think. And uh, he, he might uh, step back and, and fail to nominate her or, or push for her candidacy in uh, in Europe. So we just don't know. It's it's all behind smoke, uh, dark smoke filled rooms, as it says. Like it's more obscure than the election of a pope, I think. So so much for yes. European democracy, anyway. Yes, exactly. This is the whole point. Um, mm. uh, I'm often attacked for my pro Brexit stance, and I think it's fair to say that a lot of people have been very disappointed by the outcome of brexit although uh, materially from day to day it means little more than having to pay endless customs charges on imports a friend of mine um with a small business has been extremely negatively impacted by uh, uh you know almost total disappearance of his exports to europe but the one good thing about not being in the European Union is that that woman is nothing to do with me. She does not speak for me. I am not under her yoke. She bought billions of euros worth of vaccines, didn't she? Mm -hmm. uh, in a very murky deal that she might appear to have profited from. Um, mm -hmm. I'm seeing that she assumed office, and indeed that is an entirely accurate way of describing her. She did assume office, and since assuming office, She's assumed all sorts of other power and authority. Um, mm. She isn't really supposed to have this sort of grandiose foreign policy role. It's really supposed to be only a, a an administrative position. Exactly. You know, it's not supposed to well, be uh, sort of <clears throat> Anyway, she's, very, she's, sorry, she's due yeah. to finish yeah. in December, isn't she? She's due to finish this year. Yeah, that's right. So, because after the European Parliament elections, there's a there's a complete turnover of, of the Commission. I mean. Elections are in, in May, and then, I don't know, I think it maybe could be December, but I mean, that's the end of her term, basically, this year. So what, if we're going to try and get rid of her, we, non-Brits, non that is, you have to vote for an anti-European party, because what's going to happen is <coughs> the European Parliament consists of the Socialists and the Christian Democrats and smaller parties, and what happens is that the government's consult again in smokefield rooms with these heads of these parties so they'll stitch up the jobs stitch up so some there'll be socialists having some of the jobs and uh, and christian democrats some of the other jobs and then they'll be balanced in gender and big country small country all those things but the small yes. parties dissidents and thinkers won't have a say at all so the, the sort of far right or the far left or the and the people who want peace in europe uh they they just onlookers just like much of the european public in reality i mean it's a kind of oligarchy that runs brussels and of course she's very popular in brussels because she's given the bureaucrats can feel their warped 
tall, these nerds are kind of making war on Russia sort of thing. And so they'll do her best, their best, I think, to keep her in power. But um, as I said, you, the public watching this, I strongly recommend you to vote for uh, a Eurosceptic party and really show the bastards, you know. Whether it's left or right probably doesn't matter. But I think in many countries there won't be a choice. I think France has a choice because Le Pen is anti-European and Mélenchon on the left as well. And of course, in uh, Gert Wilders in Holland, I think. But the trouble is when all these people get power, they moderate and they sell out on their principles. For instance, in Sweden, yes. unless you vote for a tiny party that gets half of a percent, you won't get anything that's anti-European. Even the Sweden Democrats with the so-called far right, they've gone gone native. So it feels a bit hopeless, really. Um, yes. Although I would I would just slightly check your language there, Pelly, because anti-European Union and anti-European are not the same thing. I'm yeah. uh, 100% in favour of Europe yeah. as yeah. a cultural hub and as uh, undoubtedly the most wonderful place in the world, but I'm very much opposed to the way yeah. the politics is organised by the European Union. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but, but I like I mean, I liked Brussels when I was there because you did meet a lot of smart people. I mean, it really was a campfire for Europe. And Britain is 65 million people. Europe is 500 million people. So the best of Europe you get more interesting people than you look at just even a large country like Britain. So I commuted between London and Brussels and found I had invariably more interesting conversations in Brussels than in London. But I mean, that's not to say that the bureaucracy is not corrupt and all the rest of it. I mean, I, I just right. met a lot of people coming to conferences and things like that. So I was always mixed, mixed, I had mixed feelings about Brexit. But anyway, I mean, and what I, about the, what about the restaurants, Holly? Restaurants oh, well, they're in brilliant. Brussels are better, aren't and then they? once you're in another circuit, you never need to buy another meal or go to another party again. I mean, you, they're, they're cocktail parties every night, you know, and because uh, right. all the countries have embassies, all the NGOs, all the think tanks, all the lobbyists, the arms yes. lobbyists. So, yes. I mean, you know, it is a you are seduced into it, you know, and always interesting, beautiful, beautiful women, you know, and, um, uh, you know, beautiful senators, women, daughters, rich food and champagne. That That's right. The, 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 interesting conversation, yeah. interesting uh, minds, you know, but you need probably need to be. And then these troglodytes from uh, the, the Brexit parties from Britain, you know, with a ultra British manners, you know, and kind of arrogant and pompous. I mean, I much prefer the Europeans, actually. But I mean, I think they have a point. Absolutely. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm still agnostic leaning towards Brexit now, you know. Well, I mean, I, anyway. I, I would be happy to be part of a European Union that had a powerful European Parliament but basically closed down the commission and yeah. all the other non-elected bureaucrats like von der Leyen uh, yeah. with her I nonsense, mean, you know, go on. Terrible woman. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Thank you, Basil. Talk to you tomorrow. This Thank is for you. Tomorrow's news. Thank you. That's our news producer, Basil Valentine. And we're going into break now. This is TNT Radio. TNT's Tyler Nixon. I think uh, with the people behind her, the never Trumpers and the money flowing in, Whatever their end game is, it doesn't seem that she'll be dropping out even if she loses her, her own state, which uh, kind of gives you a sense of the arrogance of power of people who back uh, the Nikki Haley's of the world, where the popular uh, support, popular consent doesn't really doesn't really mean anything to them. They're gonna they're gonna continue forward uh, seeking that power, putting themselves themselves in the mix, regardless of uh, how many spankings or smackdowns they get from. Uh, from the uh, citizens, you know, from the electorate, uh, who are obviously minor, you know, just a sort of a speed bump in the, in the uh, path and the quest for uh, power. Tyler Nixon on today's News Talk TNT. 
TNT is an independent global news talk station that does what others only say they do. TNT is a live radio and TV broadcaster that simply tells the truth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one in the world does what we do. Crisscrossing the globe, providing credible news and opinion all day and all night. In two and a half years, TNT has become a credible and exciting platform with brilliant hosts and staff. It's a critical time, and we must continue to call out the misinformation and propaganda from mainstream media and their powerful sponsors. We're now appealing to our many friends and supporters around the world to go to TNTradio.live and make a small donation to TNT while we seek the right investors to continue our important mission. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, this is uh, the Pelinareth Taylor Show. Welcome back. This is uh, our first guest of the day coming up. It's uh, Mark Mostert, who's the co-director of the Institute for Disability and Bioethics and professor of special education at Regent University at Virginia Beach. He's written about and lectured on eugenics and euthanasia and has uh, engaged in disability projects to bring disabled people more into the forefront of our attention and help them into productive and interesting jobs. Hi, Mark. Um, I was reading your uh, paper this morning on, on euthanasia, and uh, can you tell us what it what it is about? Because I think that's one of the lesser known. Uh, the, the, oh, the Jewish Holocaust obscures a little bit what they what the Nazis did to disabled people. So tell us that story. Yeah. Good morning. The um, what people don't understand. Everyone, you're right, talks about uh, the Holocaust uh, and and the murder of some odd six million Jews. But before that, the Nazis perfected their killing techniques on their own citizens with disabilities. Um, beginning in the mid-30s, they decided that there were people whose lives were not worthy of living because they could not contribute economically to the state. And so they eventually set up this whole apparatus, this whole bureaucracy to identify people with disabilities, ship them to one of six uh, what were then mental institutions, and then gas them in the basement. And that's how they learned uh, the techniques of, uh, of gassing people and executing people using gas was uh, against their own citizens in Nazi Germany. And the entire society was prepared by the National Socialists uh, to accept this form of, of, of murder and, and execution. Um, people in the arts started to make films uh, showing people with disabilities in the worst light. Uh, politicians certainly did that. Academics did that. The medical field was completely complicit. In fact, at the killing centers, it was Nazi policy that the only person who could turn on the gas to execute people with disabilities was the medical director, a doctor, an MD. So you had this complete melding of, of uh, medicine and execution as something that became more and more acceptable. Uh, that program went on until about 1941, late 1941, when eventually uh, the truth came out about people going to these centers and never coming back. And then it was discontinued formally, but still went on informally for the rest of the war. Mm, gosh, I, I mean, I've, I've got nothing to add. I'm not an expert on that topic, but I do. I, I, I wrote a book on uh, World War One and the effects I think that's the er event, er catastrophe of the 20th century. Uh, and of course, if you, um, the, um, the Germans were starving uh, from 1916 onwards. And I think that had several effects. I mean, the, the British were blockading them. Uh, and of course, Brits and Germans and everyone was dying in tens and hundreds of thousands as fit young men for what, 
a, a meter here or a meter there lost. It's absolutely crazy. So, so there's this huge loss of respect for human life. And also um, the Germans, I mean, the, I, I had a really interesting book, I think, called The Politics of Hunger, about how the, the generation that grew into Nazis and the Nazi youth in the 1930s, their brains had literally been deformed by starvation when they were newborns, you know. And uh, there was a very, very strong sense of victimhood in Germany, I guess, that they were the victims, not not the handicapped people. And in, in times of war, people do uh, starve and you prioritize your calories, as it were, and, and, and it becomes a fight for survival. And then when you've killed off your young men anyway to fight for a, a trench, uh, what is killing a, a, a disabled person? I mean, in, in the scale of evil. And I think we need to factor those, that in as well. You know, I mean... That the global lack of respect for for life and death that was uh, happening after the war, w would you agree with that? Yes, and yeah, and continues to this day. I mean that that when you, when you look at um, uh, when you look at what what the, the the Nazis did to people with disabilities, it is a blueprint uh, very similar to what is happening now across the world with the pro death movement and the uh, the promulgation of assisted suicide and euthanasia. Uh, the same kind of propaganda, the same kind of medical people getting involved, politicians getting involved, uh, and where we have this culture of death now, where essentially the pro death people are seeking throughout the world to have death on demand anytime, anywhere for anybody. And that mm. unfortunately is where we are. I think that's one legacy of what happened in Nazi Germany is that we have this happening now today in our very society. Okay, well, I mean, another obvious topic today is to talk about uh, vaccines and COVID because some people think that that's their, they're like death jabs, but we'll go into a quick break uh, after the uh, news headlines and then we'll talk to you after uh, in a few minutes. This is TNT Radio. TNT Radio News. Bring the news. Matt Boyland here with your TNT headlines. Washington has warned the situation in Ukraine is extremely dire, admitting the country's losing territory as Kyiv's forces retreat from their positions amid strong Russian advances. The situation is extremely serious right now. Frontline workers who were sacked or suspended for refusing the COVID vaccine in the Australian state of Queensland are celebrating a huge win. And Donald Trump and Joe Biden both won their respective primaries in Michigan on Tuesday, putting them on a path to a potential rematch in November. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda. It never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Uh, welcome back to the Pelinero Taylor Show. We've got Mark Mostert, who's uh, a disabilities uh, campaigner and uh, an academic who's written an interesting and horrific papers on the uh, Holocaust of the disabled people in Nazi Germany. Um, Mark, I, I don't know where you stand on vaccines. I'm sort of agnostic. I'll just just explain the background. I'm convinced that uh, people have told lies about been told lies about lockdowns and their efficacy and masks and their efficacy, the death rate of untreated COVID. And the the fact that they they quieted down they they sort of silenced the efficiency of uh, 
ivermectin and vitamin D. And I, I mean, some people, and I'm agnostic about whether the pharma in industry did this deliberately to increase their profits of a vaccine that may or may not work. As to the vaccine, I'm still, my, the jury's out. I'm still researching as much as I can. I can't say convincingly either way. I mean, there's something, a lot of very clever people, uh, you know, including Pfizer executives say this is a, like a death jab. Uh, and I'm just trying to just find my way through it. Uh, so you don't have to be a convert to it. But I mean, I'm saying, let's say it's a 30% possibility that all the anti-vaxxers are right. It's still a topic to keep in mind when you debate these things. Um, would you draw, I mean, it's, is it facile to compare uh, the 1930s uh, uh, death of uh, killing of useless eaters, the disabled people, with with the whole uh, vaccination campaign of Bill Gates and Pfizer and so on. Well, I, I think um, maybe um, uh, there are certain parallels in terms of how the, the the whole COVID vaccine was was handled. I think the part that that distinguishes it, uh, I don't necessarily believe that anyone in the government or at Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson and Johnson uh, sat around a table saying, let's kill people with a jab. I, I don't I don't I don't think that's true at all. What I do think is true is that there was uh, perhaps undue panic at the beginning of the pandemic to where we had to do something and we weren't quite sure what to do. And, you know, public officials uh, hopefully walk that very fine line with the public of it being informative and, and taking decisive action versus causing public panic. And I don't think anyone did a good job of that at the beginning. It was, oh, my goodness, here's this horrible thing. There's these videos of people dropping dead in the streets in China. We're all going to die kind of thing. And I think there wasn't enough done at that point to say, hold on a second. Yeah, this is serious, but we're, we're going about this as best we can in a, in a logical way. And that's the other part of this that didn't work. Because there was so much, and I think uh, the, the, the vaccine, people, the, the, the pharmaceutical companies felt this pressure as well. We've got to do something. We've got to do it quickly. Let's go. And so I think the research into getting the vaccines out, and they're not really vaccines in the sense of a polio vaccine, quite frankly, but there was this rush to get anything out in the hopes that it would work. And I think we now know enough on the back end to say that that probably wasn't the best idea. Okay. We know a lot more right now. For example, the six foot uh, distancing thing, we now know it just appeared and no one really officially adopted it, but it took wings and flew off and we had stores with, you know, places where you had to stand and so on. What I do think the greatest damage was, aside from the fact that many people lost loved ones, was that now nobody or very few people actually on either side of the debate, I would imagine, actually believe much anything that uh, the CDC uh, or the World Health Organization uh, or Pfizer, Moderna, whatever, for that matter, um, they don't necessarily believe anything about them. And that loss of confidence, I think, is probably the greatest loss that came out of the COVID, uh, the COVID era. Mm. I just wanted, well, the, the point I wanted to wheel back to the point about uh, Nazism, I, I, haven't fa I haven't studied that much about uh, Nazism, but I'm fascinated by the psychology of people who live in, under tyr tyrannical regimes, right? Will, I mean, let's say we, we, we look forward hundred in a hundred years time, let's say the Chinese run the world, you know, or, or whatever. Will they write about uh, America as, as Nazi Germany? Will they say, well, how could you let this happen? You know, just as we berate the Germans for allowing the, the Holocaust to happen and, and living their normal lives a few kilometers from Auschwitz or Dachau. And we said, well, we didn't know. And uh, do, I mean, like doctors in Nazi Germany, 
did they feel that they were doing something evil or was there some kind of justification? Was there some psychological mechanism that allowed them to do what they're doing? And should we look at, at ourselves in a similarly critical light? Because one of my criticisms of the Holocaust is that it almost gives us a moral alibi here in the West. It's like the keystone event of the post-1945 order, in a way. We in the West, we fought the good war. We we didn't back down. We fought the Battle of Britain, you know, Winston Churchill, and then we saved the Jews, and then that's it. We, we That gives us an alibi, and then colonialism, forget about it. You know, now the Indians are saying, well, hang on, you Brits killed millions of us, so don't come and lecture us on the Holocaust, you know? But anyway... Um, but we're so, so it's given us an alibi, but I'm, I'm more interested in us asking questions about evil now. I mean, do you think, so back, back to my question, were the Nazis aware of that they, that, that they were evil or did they have a, a, an excuse? I think, uh, I'm, I'm sure there were some that did. For example, um, uh, the, the Eitzatsgruppen, which were uh, death squads who, who went uh, after the Germans had gone through a particular area, they went through and massacred all the Jews. We do have strong evidence that they knew what they were doing was absolutely wrong. They used to go to taverns at night and get absolutely blind drunk because they couldn't stand what they'd been doing all day. However, uh, you know, you know the, the, whole, the whole killing machine and the bureaucracy of Nazi Germany, for many people, it was just a day job. That's what you did. You got up in the morning, you went and you gassed a whole bunch of people with disabilities because they didn't matter. They couldn't produce. They were basically vermin, as they later said about the Jews. And then at five o'clock, you knocked off and went and had dinner with your family. They very much saw it as an everyday. They were basically vermin, as they later said about the Jews. And then at five o'clock, you knocked off and went and had dinner with your family. They very much saw it as an everyday thing for the good of the state, for the good of Germany. And yes, were there people that said, wait a minute, this is wrong? Absolutely. But as a general, as a general idea. The bureaucracy just did what all bureaucracies do well. Mm -hmm. They turn anything into a banal routine event, no matter how good or bad it is. And I think that mm -hmm. for most people was what it was. Also, mm -hmm. there were people in the German population who absolutely knew that this was wrong. However, you know, the, the terror factor of speaking out against it was very strong. But the person who finally spoke out and ended at least the formal program of killing people with disabilities was a Lutheran bishop by the name of Bishop uh, Garland's Garland. And he stood up and, 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 and produced a sermon that he disseminated to every Roman Catholic church uh, in Germany saying, we know what you guys are doing and you need to stop it because this is evil and this is wrong. And Hitler toyed with the idea of having him assassinated and decided he couldn't do that, that would alienate too many people within the Lutheran church. But von Galen was the guy who finally had, had, had the courage to stand up and say, this is not going to happen anymore. We understand it, we know it, it's out in the open, stop. And that ended at least the formal program. And as I said, going forward though, it did happen informally. That's very, very interesting. And I never heard of him. And it's good that we talk about these heroes, forgotten heroes. Um, we've just got two minutes left. So can you just quickly say something about, uh, you wrote an article about that was a United Nations sort of turned the disability day or have this kind of disability project, which you think is not very effective at helping disabled people. And you yeah, argue for more yeah, privacy. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Sorry. I, yeah. Um, the United Nations is, is, of course, a massive bureaucracy. And, and my point of the piece was that some very, very important good ideas, when you think about them or devise a program, don't necessarily come out the other end in the way that you intended. And that's with most with most bureaucracies, unfortunately. And and what happened was the the after many years of deliberations, meeting and so on, the UN came up in 2006 with a treaty uh, on the rights of people with disability. Absolutely fantastic. You know, we want no more hunger, no more poverty, no more bias, those kinds of lovely ethereal things that, that look great in documents. 
member countries fell over themselves to sign on to this and only then later discovered that there are certain metrics that they'd signed on, signed on to that in their countries they had to meet. And of course, in many countries, they couldn't. So you had a perfectly good document, very well-meaning, but the implementation has not gone very well. Mm-hmm. And basically today, the, 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 the treaty is um, not effective because after it's been through all the bureaucracy to the countries, it's just not working. So Mark, um, just tell us where we can find your, your current project. What's it called if people can Google it and... Uh follow it's uh, yeah i'm, I'm currently campaign. i'm currently uh, yeah I'm, I'm currently with uh, the national center for public policy research as a senior researcher and uh we run a program called able americans and just google nationalcenter.org nationalcenter.org will find us okay able americans thank you very much this is disability campaigner and academic mark moster thank you very much for getting into break thank you so much appreciate it tnt radio thank you Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. If you tuned into one of the three major cable networks on Saturday night at 7 p.m. when the polls closed in South Carolina to see how long it would take for Donald Trump to be declared the winner, well, let's just say you better have been on time. The polls have now closed at 7 p.m. We are waiting to see whether we will have a call in one direction or another or a too early to call. That has been the case in a few of the contests we've had. And as you can see there, and I'm learning this as I see it on your screen myself, we do have a call. We have projected a winner at polls closing. That was MSNBC, CNN was even faster in calling the race. Polling places are about to close in South Carolina. Five seconds left in the GOP presidential primary fight between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. And right now, we can make a major projection. CNN projects that Donald Trump will win the South Carolina Republican primary, defeating former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in her home state. And Fox News was just as quick. It is 7 p.m. here on the East Coast, and the polls are officially closed in the state of South Carolina. Good evening. I'm Brett Baer. And good evening, everybody. I'm Martha McCallum, live here at Fox News headquarters in New York for our special coverage of the South Carolina Republican primary. And the Fox News decision desk can now project that former President Donald Trump will win the state's GOP primary. Yes, all in all, a good night for Trump. Very bad night for Nikki Haley in her own home state. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. Hi. I'm your retirement fear. But don't be scared. You're still in pre-tirement. Does that mean I have more time to plan? Precisely. Here, this is pretirement.org. Retirement savings options? <laughs> Potential tax breaks. Ooh. This isn't scary. I'm doing it. You got this. Visit thisispretirement.org for free resources to help you customize your action plan. Coming to you live from Sweden, you're with Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to the Pella Neuroth-Taylor Show. We've got Mike Wallow with us again, uh, having spoken so interestingly, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago, about the new woke CIA and FBI, but we didn't get as far as we wanted. So, Mike, you're going to talk us through some of the issues I just I read uh, most of your book uh, and I, it's it's a it's a sort of um, absolutely fascinating thesis. I mean, basically, this idea that cultural Marxism came from Eastern Europe via Germany, Weimar Republic, it came to New York. This kind of um, a destructive anti-Western philosophy, uh, and then it, from there it spread into in, into government. Um, you, you you give an account of Obama and Obama's. Uh, uh, 
mentors and then you've got the intelligence services and then you've got the media and basically the, the thing that strikes me is that the intelligence services in the us are basically this kind of secret police of cultural behavioral change would you say that that's what they've become mm, that's incredible i mean and that's a very simple idea to understand and, and very powerful and persuasive thought um but we're going to get we're going to end up there but we're going to start a little bit where, where i mean the cultural marxists origins tell us about that and how it came to the us in, in a few minutes it started with karl marx himself in 1843 so five years before he wrote the communist manifesto and had this economic revolution of the poor toiling masses against the wealthy few he came up with the idea to destroy western society or all society by destroying their culture so by destroying their national heritage their to their religious heritage their moral heritage all the principles of their their countries as well as destroying their uh, uh, local communities and their 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 nuclear families so this was something that Karl Marx didn't originate, but he did as a Marxist. It didn't catch on at the time. And so you had the great revolutions of, of the late 1840s. And by that time, it was social and economic revolutions. But Marx had then become known as uh, author of the Communist Manifesto uh, as an economic revolutionary. So this was, idea was revived after the Bolsheviks, after World War I, after they took power. And they thought, we're not going to be able to have replicate our revolutions in Western countries through Bolshevik means. We'll have to try something else. So they revived this whole idea of cultural Marxism. Well, I mean, the social revolution, I remember reading a book about Russia in 1920s, you know, where uh, aristocratic women had to cut their hair and put charcoal in their faces and how the peasants used paintings as, as toilet paper or whatever, you know, and complete sort of hatred against uh, Western civilization of which the Tsarist empire tried to be a part. Uh, and then of course it went to, to, to Frankfurt because they wanted to create a revolution there and, and recruited a lot of people who were intellectuals. Is that right? Right. And so you take over the intellectuals, take over the cultural elites, and then you can change societies that way through revolutionary means. Right. Like the universities are the factories or something like that. You know, you don't take over the factories, you take over the universities. And then, I mean, these are these are these are names. After the Second World War, I guess these people went to the states and tried to spread the message there. Um, and they, uh, Herbert Marcuse, I know is a name. Can you tell us about Marcuse and his influence? Sure. Well, they came over actually before the, the uh, Second World War. So with the they, with the rise of of the Nazis, so their goal was to take apart Weimar Germany and collapse it and take power. So Hitler did it before they could. So they they fled to. Uh, Western Europe and then the UK, and then others came to the United States. So the so much of the Frankfurt School was picked up from Frankfurt, Germany, and transferred completely to New York, to Columbia University, where they had a uh, Columbia University Teachers College, and they could then get in there and learn uh, and develop new ways of education to teach the teachers to spread their revolution through through. Uh, uh, kindergarten through uh, you know high school and uh, colleges and universities. Herbert Marcuse was one of the great theorists of the Frankfurt School in the United States. He was a German. He was he was uh, with the Communist International, the Comintern. That was so that was the Soviet-controlled entity to control all the world's communist parties. He, like many other communists, broke with Stalin, but they still kept the same core principles. And he developed that into a way to make revolution more fun, more exciting. 
So you combine it yeah. with Sigmund Freud's sex. So you politicize sex and you have mm-hmm. as much illicit sex as possible to tear apart societal norms and to tear apart families and to sort of break, especially younger people, away from mm-hmm. the moorings that the, their families had had previously. So what does Marcuse do? Well, with, with the advent of World War II, the British persuaded the United States to build its first foreign, foreign uh, intelligence service. And this service, called the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, needed people, uh, very intelligent people, scholars, linguists, subject matter experts on the areas of where the Axis was in control. And Herbert Marcuse was one of them. So he joined the American Intelligence Service as a communist and then used that credential later on to become a formative part of what the CIA considers him now one of the founding fathers of American intelligence. He was really a Soviet operative and a communist Mm -hmm. and a cultural Marxist who developed this whole theory where by the 1960s you had the new left rejecting the Soviet ways but still wanting the same, you know, utopia. And so Mm -hmm. Marcuse developed theories to guide that and shape it. Well, I, I just remember phrases like repressive tolerance. That was his main idea. So you can't tolerate ideas from the le- right, but you can tolerate ideas from the left or something, because that's the right way somehow. So it's anti-freedom of speech. I mean, just my, my idea of cultural Marxism is that it makes debate impossible, because all deb- everything that I see as freedom and debate is just white, my white male middle-aged masculinity and just an excuse for my expression of that power. It's just it's just a, a surface indication, a surface to, to fool people. And so basically, you can't, if you're my opponent, you can't have a debate with me because that's just submitting. And if I'm logical, well, that's just white logic, isn't it? White male supremacist logic. And logic, of course, I did maths at university, is supposed to be the universal language that you can communicate with aliens with because logic is the same whatever galaxy you're in or mathematics, that's what attracted me to maths actually. But I mean, so, and of course, when you can't have a debate, that way lies strife and violence, doesn't it? I mean, does that, yeah. It it makes it so you can't have normal discussions anymore. You're destroying personal relationships. You're destroying reason. Even the French revolutionaries, as extreme as they were, you know, after things got going, they still had what they considered reason. And there was still some sort of discussion possible without getting your head chopped off. But now you can't even have reason. Everything is based on grievance and oppression. So so white males are the oppressors and all of society, even logic was designed by white males. It's, it's an ancient Greek tradition. Right. So all these ancient Greco-Roman traditions on which our civilization is based are also under attack. So, I mean, in in my world, if you have a good argument uh, and you you, you know the rules of logic, well, then then you're the the winner, as it were. But now you you can't have an adjudication of a winner in an argument. Presumably, is it it your level of oppression that, that determines who's right in an argument or whose right prevails in a particular conflict? Right. You know, yeah. Or is it yeah, the strongest, the most violent person? I don't know. I mean, we all live in a planet of 8 billion people. How do you adjudicate differences if you can't uh, discuss? You do it through intimidation and force. Mm. Right. Okay. And then with the and sort of self-righteousness you that you're the yeah. pressed person. Yeah. Right. And you dehumanize the opponent by, you know, based on what you identify them as or what they, quote, right. identify themselves as, based on who right. they are, really. So basically, I mean, this has been, this is kind of a, 
uh, I knew that it had taken over the universities, um, this kind of thinking, but you're also saying that it's taken over the, uh, and, and journalism to some extent, I knew that, but you're saying it's taken over the intelligence agencies. So the long march through the institutions. And what effect has that had? Uh, and what's the intelligence and, and FBI and, and CIA, but try, are they try, trying to reshape the American populace by, by, by these critical theory? I mean, yes. are they like Bolshevik? Yeah, right. What, well, so how yeah, are they doing it? They don't say it in public, but they say it in their in internal messaging, some mm -hmm. of which I, I reproduced in, in Big Intel. They call themselves secret agents of change. Right. So when you think of it in a, in a Western democracy where you have your mm. intelligence services who, are, who have become accountable to no one, mm. viewing themselves as secret agents of change to foment cultural revolution, not only in their own structures, but through society at large. And there's no way to stop it because our, our, our presidents, regardless of party, and our legislative institutions have not even begun to confront this yet. Mm. Wow. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a new. It sort of makes sense, with, with, given all the other things that I've I know about how the world functions, and I'm very interested in intelligence agencies. But this gives a new angle to it, and uh, it sort of sounds very plausible because they'll use all the tricks that they've learned and honed through decades, and and the powers that the FBI have, and so on. I mean, are the FBI har harassing white males in particular now? And traditional They're families. They're do, yeah, they're doing it in a in a different way. So internally, they're doing it by with through diversity, equity, and inclusion, which doesn't mean what it pretends to mean. It's 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 not an equalizer, but it's a it is a, a means of getting uh, these different identity groups uh, to rise artificially through the ranks, not based on merit, but based on identity, and mm -hmm. then by forcing out capable people, regardless of of who they are, but because the FBI is mostly white males, it's to push them aside. Uh, force them out, and force the other ones meekly to comply. So FBI Director Ray, for example, is not one of these revolutionaries, but he's just a, a weakling who's at the top who allows himself mm. to be pushed around by the militants mm. taking over the nerve center. Mm. As far as society goes, they've already started coming after traditional uh, uh, people, say traditional Latin Rite Catholics, were now viewed as a threat to American national security. Um, uh, people who were opposed uh, abortion yeah. and who were, were out by clinics not to harass people but just to just to be there as a vigil uh, because mm -hmm. they believe these are unborn children who are who are being killed and so they're there just as a silent vigil which is protected speech they're now harassed as uh, as uh, threats and then right. during the COVID lockdown when you had parents realizing the really strange social revolutionary indoctrination going on in many of our public schools these are the government schools by government workers mm -hmm. you had parents confronting the elected school board members and that was viewed as a threat and then even the fbi mm -hmm. was called in to take care of them. so yeah you this is the this is the the, the origin we're, we're at the original point right now in the past few years of of the fbi being used against traditional families right and you talked about the soviet union quite a lot and um I know that you did. You work with Singlaub and back in the eighties, and I did. Brian Crozier, yeah. Okay, yeah. well, I mean, I did a lot of research about those guys because I, was, I, I wrote a book about Olaf Palme, the Swedish Prime Minister, who was a sort of sworn enemy of these guys, and they said he was a communist. But and I don't think that. Having read, I think he was a normal social democrat, but he was harassed by people who thought that he was a closet communist, and that's why I'm a bit biased towards these guys. But okay, let's, but there was um, 
um, the thing is, w- w- you, you, you've written quite anti-Russian stuff in, on your blogs and stuff, but aren't the Russians now representing, they're post-communist, aren't they now representing a world that many conservatives admire? I mean, there's been a huge rise of religion in Russia. And there's this, I mean, it's propaganda, of course, but they're standing up in the world as, a, as defenders of re- traditional rights. And they say, haha, you're the communists now. You think there's any truth to that statement? Well, look, you, this type of stuff, you know, wokeness and critical theory and cultural Marxism are not allowed in Russia. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, Putin knows what he's dealing with. He's 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 a he's a smart guy. He um, so so people do uh, like this this alpha male leader, not some you know mm. wimpy euro leader who is who is a, or you know an Obama type who's just sort of been mm. feminized and and brought into this world of critical theory and cultural Marxism. That's not to say he's a good man at all, but it's just, right. it is to say he's an effective leader who has presided over a traditionalist revival in his country. Because mm. I think he's anti-communist. I mean, there's a lot of, I read Russia Today sometimes, and there's a lot of um, propaganda, obviously, but they're quite open about the failures of communism. So it's okay to, to criticize communism. And um, I don't know. I mean, it seems that... Uh, uh, but just to, to change the subject, do, do you think that um, Obama played a role here in, in this? Because he had his, uh, very interesting, his his mentors were communists, weren't they? And uh, some people talk about Biden as the third Obama administration. So he's had 12 years now to push a sort of critical theory agenda, communist agenda on uh, on the West, on, on America. Is that right? Yeah. And if you word it that way, the, the communist agenda, it sounds crazy. But if you look at it as a critical theory agenda, which is the the uh, the the engine of cultural Marxism? Then it's yeah. it's really precise. And when Obama came in, he 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 uh, inherited and took over a national security bureaucracy that had been centralized excessively by President George W. Bush mm. after the September 11th attacks in 2001, mm. in a way that the United States had never seen before. Mm. And so, so we had always had a a a, a divided intelligence community uh, the CIA could not operate internally the FBI was was the investigations were begun in the local cities and not in the central government level in Washington this was all changed after 9/11 to fight terrorism along with laws that gave the security apparatus extraordinary powers mm. so when you have a centralized system like that then it's it's subject to abuse from the top by someone who wants to abuse it so by the right. time Obama came in he was able to impose that in his in his second year in office, mm-hmm. and he imposed it from the top down mm-hmm. into a bureaucracy that had already been now filled with newer, mainly newer and younger people who had been imbued with critical theory and cultural Marxism through college. So they viewed their country, they viewed America not as um, what we had always viewed ourselves as. They, they viewed our founding principles as morally corrupt as written by racist white men who had no redeeming mm. values and mm. viewed the United States as a country to be uh, loathed in one way and fixed mm. in another way and mm. to become just one other country in the world. So we've become what we've become now. You know, we, we can't mm. even maintain freedom of the seas anymore. Mm. Thank you. Uh, Mike, we've got to start to wind up there, but basically to summarize uh, recent developments in America, I think we America is run by Obama's secret behavioral police, and then you'll everything makes sense, including. Do you think the election was stolen in 2020? Yes or no? That's all we have time for. 
Yeah, yeah, it's certain to be areas yeah, okay. that made a difference. So, okay, thanks a lot. Uh, we'd love to have you on again, Mike Waller, uh, uh, author and a former spy. Thank you very much, Mike. And we've been for time there. <laughs>